0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree. I'm half of your hosts, Nicholas Lorimer,
1: and I'm joined by the other half, Gabriel Krauser, and together we are Amarilla and Ice. Uh, Indeed. For the
0: entire. It's up to the. I think it's up to the audience to decide which one is Ice and which one is Amarilla.
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Please feel free to send emails.
0: So. Uh, exciting times! Um, the the mini the mini holiday season is coming up. The sort of March, April, May stretch when we have a whole bunch of holidays clustered together, otherwise known to as the looming third wave. <laughs> yes, um, I've been watching those positivity numbers uh, very closely um, on our daily cases, and there's been a little worrying bump in the last days, in the last two days or so. So I think. It's still very, very early to tell, but I'm going to continue to watch that very keenly. Um, That aside, uh, how are things going, Gabriel? I believe that yesterday you went to an art museum and did fancy art things. Uh, Tell us us about it.
1: Yeah, it's been a good week. So, um, taking advantage of the trough in cases... Uh, It's been a a relatively social week for me under careful circumstances and outdoors and all that. But um, one of the things that we did is go to the Javit art museum, which is in Pretoria. And I think is, you know, it's debatable, but I think it's, I think there's a strong case to be made for it being the best or tied best uh, culture space in the country. Certainly in terms of fine art. Uh, I think there's a very strong case for it to be made that it's the best, and uh to explain a little bit why it's it's been built uh from the south end of the Pretoria University campus as a bridge over to a bit of the campus that was on the other side of the main road, and the architecture is quite interesting. I think that there's something funny about the boudavort curtain sort of dividing uh what paul kruger used to call "Davelstut," stutt joburg the gritty smoggy greedy cutthroat but also dynamic fabulous interesting uh, cultural melting pot from pretoria which had always been a more centrally organized uh and sort of state driven place rather than free market driven um and and that dividing line of the buddhavort's curtain was sometimes said to be the sort of wimpy that was on a bridge over the highway, that's exactly the kind of thing that should divide a borderless curtain. <laughs> and anyway, so there's just this funny sort of connection that I have, and I think uh, some people have of uh, of of the odd use of bridges, um, which of course, like in ancient days, you know, the bridges over the River Thames, and in much of Italy, they were. Also, you know, restaurants or trading spaces or living spaces. Um, and so I think it's nice for, for an art space, particularly in this in this country, to be built into a bridge uh, because that's why I became an art critic. I thought that South Africans talked past each other a lot in the public square about politics and about deep human values, but that in in the domain of art, um, there was a, a greater chance of... of finding one another. And, okay, so that's the metaphor and the architecture, which is in itself very interesting. And in terms of the more practical side, so the collection was largely donated, the money to uh, gather the collection and some of the works by um, uh, Mr. Javitt. I can't remember his name. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's worth billions. I mean, the whole project together is worth billions, the construction and all that. So it's very so huge. Concentration, Jack. If
0: if he was hoping for fame, everlasting fame, by donating the things, um, <laughs> things may have come up short. But at least he's he's given to the world of art. So I
1: can I can remember it. I'll remember it in a bit. He has, um and his son is heavily involved. Yeah, the, the younger Javit. and the Jack Ginsburg collection, which is super important, has you know donated some works and. Um, uh, given some works on long-term loan and and stuff like that. The guy who kind of drove the project um, in its inception to to its opening exhibition was Christopher Till, who ran the Johannesburg Art Gallery in the late 80s and early 90s when it was the best uh, thing on the continent. Um, He also was an MEC for Arts and Culture in Gauteng when that was doing very important work in the early 90s, sort of after the ANC came to power, He was instrumental in raising money to protect the market theater from general collapse uh, when the central business district of Johannesburg became super unruly and unsafe. Uh, He then, amongst other things, founded the Apartheid Museum, which uh, in terms of non-high art, I think is uh, commercially, it's undoubtedly the most successful uh, museum space in the country. uh, Lots of tourists go there much beloved and I think for good reason I think it does a really good job of um showing how complicated the apartheid issue was and how it changed over time and who the heroes and villains were but also sort of uh, not falling for the trap of of making everything super black and white and then he did the Javits and he has in December actually uh left the Javits um and I'm not prepared to get into the reasons why I think it's a bit sad myself um but the first uh, exhibition that was exhibited at the Javit under his curatorial sort of supervision was called uh, South African Art 101. And, you know, the American university system 101 means like entry level survey class. And at the same time, uh, they, so they had 101 works from the last 101 years from South African artists. And it really just was the greatest concentration of South African art in one space that I've ever seen in my lifetime and I think that's ever been gathered in my lifetime. And perhaps that will be, you know, that that uh, status will be preserved for the rest of my lifetime because uh, that kind of show really takes uh, just hundreds of millions in insurance fees and uh, hard work and also curatorial insight and so on. Um it was, it was an amazing thing. And I'm proud to say that my mother's um, uh, piece de resistance, uh, Liberty, uh, uh, was one of the centerpiece works. It's sort of a riff off of Delacroix's Liberty at the Barricades. where you have got this bare-breasted woman waving a flag above revolutionaries and dead soldiers. And it's quite a famous image. And what she did is uh, she used... Uh, Many of South Africa's great theater makers, actors, directors, uh, script writers, and so on, uh, to, to recast this image. Uh, to make the point that uh, the, the end of apartheid, you, that apartheid was brought down, the revolution uh, was manifest, not so much by guns. In Kontowese, it was relatively ineffective, and the apartheid's armed forces were very, very strong. Uh, but by the battle of ideas and by the theatrical spectacle of seeing people sort of play out stories in ways that uh, crossed racial lines and, and spoke to a common humanity. Um, anyway. That was a winner. Uh, this exhibition that I went to uh, and then that lasted through lockdown. And this is the first really big show that they've had since since the lockdown. And it was a solo show of Willem Bosov. Who I think most art critics in South Africa would agree is one of the top five living South African artists. But I want to give this was a retrospective, and I want to take a chance to just tell the listeners a little bit about Willem Bosov, Uh because I think he really is a national treasure and has been done a few disservices.
0: If 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 I may if I may intrude for but a moment. Um, If you were to rank National treasures right at the moment, uh, where would you put him in relation to Demi Demi, who we talked about in our favorite episode?
1: episode. (laughs) I think he's he's up there with Demi Demi. He really is. Uh, And and just as an aside, uh, my mother and her butler, um, uh, whose name is Innocent, very good man, very honorable man. uh, They have been having long debates about Demi Demi. And uh, and using him. One of his great lines is, you are not a tree. You can walk away. <laughs> and they've been using yes. that line on each other. <laughs> <laughs> <Wisdom> <laughs> they've both for everyone. <laughs> they've both become fans of Jamie Jamie through the Two Crickets podcast. So I'm, I'm very true, glad. Very that. good. <laughs> so, okay. Um, Willem Borshoff. His career, in a sense, starts when he um, sort of of, uh, falls out of the army. He was conscript and conscientiously uh, objects to this uh, on the basis of what we would call enlightened or classically liberal values. And so falls foul of the regime and also of the sort of high fashion of the day. Uh, and, and decides to sort of make his life out of art in the grooves of South Africa's boot, of the Nat boot. And um, the, the art that he makes uh, is, is hard to define uh, because, a lo- I mean, a lot of it is more or less straightforwardly sculpture. But increasingly, he starts taking found objects and putting them on a two-dimensional plane so that it's like you're looking at a painting but it's made out of uh broken twigs or thorns or or little toy soldiers or bits of torn fabric and so on uh and sometimes spelling out a word and it it his art gets more and more wordy as time goes by now my first experience with Willem boshoff's art uh was was deeply impressive i was about 7 years old and south africa was hosting the johannesburg was hosting its second biennale the venice biennale being the sort of greatest art showcase on the world's calendar happens every two years and so joburg was trying to put up its hand and say now that we're getting on into the new south africa we want to have sort of the next great biennale the great biennale of africa every two years we'll have a big exhibition in johannesburg the second one ended up being the last um for, for, for reasons that wouldn't be too surprising to anyone who who knows how a local government and all those kinds of things worked um wow. <laughs> but uh that it's not because it wasn't itself a success and it was curated by a great nigerian creator who ended up uh curating the uh the, the venice biennale a couple of years ago and and this too was a very important moment in vilain bosov's career but just to say about the first one i was there And Willem Bolsov had these boxes uh, that you could see through made out of black metal with silver metal plates imprinted with uh, the sort of hard little nipples of Braille writing. So that the blind could read the text on the top of the box, but you or I could only see these little divots. And if you lift up the box inside, you find largely wooden objects that are beautiful Curves and strange shapes, sometimes with a bit of braille uh, metal plate uh, imprinted onto that as well and uh, and the idea w- with that that was part of the exhibition. it was sort of like twenty or thirty such boxes, and then the other thing were these things called city books, which were these sometimes wooden, sometimes metal structures that sort of, if you fold them together, look like a really big, thick book with a super hard cover, like an old school Bible. but if you open it up. You see almost the cityscape, uh, these sort of oh, blocks really cool. in different shapes. And and it, when you look at it open, it seems like there's no ways that it could possibly close. It looks like the pieces would jut out too much and obstruct each other. Um, but in fact, it was made to be able to open and close. And there was something about a city. There was something about, you know, th- especially back then when when all of South Africa's cities really were two cities. And the sense in which it seems like a closed book. uh if to yourself if you're looking at the other city and vice versa but you know in both instances if you really get in there and open it up you you see this emergent complexity and part of the reason that this is so impressive to me was that it was sort of very readily accessible to a child how confusing this was to sort of look at an object and also think that the full experience requires feeling it out and the matter of the four of the city book was also very readily understandable um but also it was very impressive to me because my grandfather and grandmother had come up to Johannesburg to see the Biennale where my mom's work was strongly featured uh, as proud parents. Um, And my grandfather at the time was blind. He'd gone blind uh, seven years before or so uh, through an accident and um, disease that had prompted. And so there we were with, with uh, daddy Pat And he was feeling the objects out and I was too. And he was seeing things in them, so to speak, that I couldn't see. And it was, it was so unnerving. Uh, And, and the Braille sort of writing would sort of confirm. He would sort of just hold what seemed like a very simple wooden block and say, this, this is exactly what the side of your face looks like. Sort of between your cheekbone and the top of your brow. And to the eye, it just doesn't look like that. But that's how he would always greet me. It was feel my face and feel my shoulders and 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 feel. He had, you know, he could recognize me and and everyone else and all his grandchildren and such like by touch. And and so it 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 it, it gave me to understand the sense of space that blind people, that that we who can see think of as being a visual representation inherently and to see that actually space itself and understanding space and shape and form uh it's actually an it's a different thing and we just have a visual access to it but there are other accesses to it this haptic access this oh, that's really sort cool of, yeah so it was just beautiful man and 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 Bosov is like there's just there's just no one in the world who's who's done such great art to to sort of disturb the visual and the, and the haptic or the touch sense um and to blur those lines it's quite so wonderfully. So he, he stands out as a, as a world uh, you know, star in that regard. And in regard to some of his word art, which then is on the two-dimensional plane that you can't feel, but that you look at in a more conventional sense. So the first Biennale I've not tol- told you about, the second Biennale um, was, I think, 2017, 2016, somewhere around there. And this Biennale was curated by Christopher Till, And Jeremy Rose. Now that was very unusual. Two straight white men. uh, Curating the South African. You know at the Venice Biennale. It's like every country kind of sends its own representatives. To sort of put the best of their art. Or you know kind of join the party. And to have two straight white men doing that. Was was very unusual. And the reason was explicitly. Because the previous exhibition had been a nightmare. It hadn't worked out. And this one the guys who'd won the tender. To do it or whatever didn't end up like filing the papers in time and hadn't gotten their act together. And so it was literally like, (laughs) uh, looking like it almost wasn't going to happen. And so there was an emergency tender put out and uh, Rose and Till were just the only guys who put up their hand who had the capacity to pull off a grand show at the last minute. And so it looked like you had these heroes there to save the day. And, the, the two artworks, I mean, they, they took a whole bunch of artworks, but the two that sort of stood out and were decried across South African media at the time one was by Willem Borsoff and the other one was by Brett Murray. Now, Brett Murray is most famous for the spear, a painting of Zuma yes. with his Willie hanging out, and that was defaced in the Goodman Gallery uh, by sort of fallists who also wanted to protect Zulu culture. Shout out to uh, King uh, Goodwill Zulatini. Uh, he was not involved, uh, and I don't think he would have approved, but that was their sort of ideas, that Zulu, Zulu culture is so vulnerable that seeing a uh, uh, Zulu's uh, penis is is is, <laughs> is somehow going to bring it down. Um, anyway, that's not the only good thing Murray's done, but that's what he's most famous for. Uh, what he had here was a video of a sort of black cop from today and a white cop from the Nat era, more or less making the same speech. Um and it's like first you have the one and then the other and then they sort of interplay and uh, it sort of points out the, 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 the awful similarities uh, in terms of citizen abuse. Not to say that it was all the same, but to say that so much of the rhetoric, so much of the sort of we need to protect our people, right. and those evil outsiders and never mind the consequences of our actions. Just look at the nobility yeah. of our intentions and so on and so forth. So go, yeah, we need to go hard, no, no, no mercy for the criminal kind of thing yeah, but no mercy for the criminal, but also this, yeah, that kind of thing, okay, so that was one of the uh works, and they said, this is terrible, how can you compare apartheid to anything? apartheid is beyond comparison, this is absolutely uh you know this is this is Nazi apology, uh terrible stuff, uh, and now the rest of the world is seeing it, you know this is this is awful. Um, And the other work was by Willem Borsoff. And I had seen this work when it first came out around 2011, 2012, I think, at the Everard Reed Gallery. And it was the first thing I was at university at the time. Uh, This is five, six years before the the Venice Biennale exhibition. And it's the first thing that I saw that I thought, holy moly, I would like to take a, a reproduction of that, you know, a poster of it and put it up in my dorm room. And it was just a round metal plate about uh, one and a half meters in diameter with black text carved, engraved into it. And the black text read more or less. I am proud to be labeled a racist in South Africa if it means that. I simply stand against fat cat politicians driving around in four by fours while the poor starve. If it means that I have to have a guard dog to protect myself and my family from murdering invaders. If it means that I'm afraid, if it means that I think, you know, the government should be reason responsive. It means that I think the people should vote their interests rather than silly ideologies and so on and so forth. So it is like a long list of 23 things sort of going around the Tondo going. Uh, and when this work first came out, I mean, I just thought this is perfect. Like I, must, I, I think that um, it really does more than any artwork capture a kind of perverse problem for, for, for members of the Institute of Race Relations. Uh, because, you know, as soon as you join the IRR, that if you make certain criticisms, you're going to be labeled a racist. And right. you know that it hurts to be labelled a racist. It hurts my. It hurts me every time someone says that, in in my subjective, affective state. And it also hurts my social status. It makes it harder for right. other people to yeah. take me seriously. So, so the,
0: the, the yeah. IR can in, in certain it closes a lot of doors to you if you uh, uh, if you if you become active in it, and if it's yeah. on your CV, there's a lot of places in South Africa. It's universities and its NGOs that'll
1: look at that and go, hmm, maybe not. So so then the question is, should you be proud of that? Sh- should you wear it as a badge of honor? Now, I don't think you should, and Borsov wasn't making the argument that you should. He was just putting, I mean, part of uh, what's interesting visually about this metal plate is how dull it is, is how uninspiring it is, is how kind of stolid and um, it sort of wears it wears this round tondo shape that you expect to see an icon of Jesus and Mary in, and you expect to see color and golden halos and and the light, and instead you just see this sort of gray and black imprint of of just brutal dry. Ugh. It's not a very handsome thing to look at. And Borsov knows how to make a thing beautiful to look at. Make it seductive. Make a a wooden block or a metal piece that you just want to grab. This is not that. He doesn't trigger that acquisitive sense. I didn't want to take the artwork. I just thought this would be an interesting thing to put up on the wall as a conversation piece in my dorm room uh, to see how it plays out. And then I thought... The problem is some people will think I'm saying I'm proud to be labeled a racist. There's no condition in, under which I'm proud to be labeled a racist. I'm sad, and I'm and and I and i not going to be put off by it if people are going to label me that uh, unfairly. But I'm definitely not proud of it. Anyway, more importantly or more simply, there's nothing in the artwork to suggest that the words are coming out of a white person's mouth. And in fact, I know plenty of black, colored, and Indian people who say... You know, these guys want to call me a racist or an agent or a House N word or an Uncle Tom or a this or a that, depending on the on on the circumstance, uh for, for speaking truth to power. And damn those fools. You know? And lots of my friends in Soweto bemoan the fact that they have to have aggressive guard dogs. Uh and right. bemoan the fact that they're fat cat politicians driving around. You know, there's just nothing. But of course, the South African media didn't read it that way. They just said Willem Bosov is proud to be labelled a racist because uh, the ANC is doing such a bad yeah, job. Man. We might as well be racist. I
0: can I can only imagine how that outward would go down now. I think it would probably make the uh, the the freaking out from the the usual suspects um, ten times. It would it would make it look it would make it look like nothing uh, the one that happened then. That yeah. happened now because things, things have gotten well, worse in, the, in, 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 in many ways. Things in have the, only uh, gotten worse. It,
1: yeah. But at the time, it was roundly denounced, and no one made the case for it. And I saw this happen, and just as I was flying off to Moscow, and I'd be trying to be an art critic, and I was, like, uh, failing at getting my work, my work placed. I would had a couple of successes at the Daily Maverick and the uh, independent media, but… It stopped working out so nicely, and then I thought, well, I'm going to Moscow for three months, and I've got other things to do. Let me see how things are when I come back in three months. In three months, no one had written a positive thing, and I found myself going to fancy, artsy, soirees, and the Westcliff, you know, richest part of Joburg, and Sandown, and Cape Town Art Fair, and everyone mentioned Willem Borshoff and Brett Murray and Christopher Till and Jeremy Rose now sort of with their hands in front of their mouths like, oh, shame, or with their fingers pointing at the side of their skulls and twisting like those guys have gone crazy. There was no defense. And so I restarted my career as a journalist. I was like, well, I have to do this. I had another job offer, but I was like, I have to do this. So I wrote the lonely defense of this art. Um, I'm sure it went in, down well. <laughs> Yes, and and this was covered by the international news too. The Guardian, of course, the New York Times, of course, and so on and so forth. All roundly <laughs> denouncing. Now, one of the great tragedies was that Jeremy Rose at the time had cancer, and he hadn't told anyone, including his own workmates. But he knew himself that he was dying of brain cancer, and he died shortly thereafter. So he died a good man with a slandered name. He and Christopher Till had uh, launched the Nelson Mandela Capture Site. Um, Amongst other things, they'd sort of worked on the Hector Peterson Memorial. Jeremy Rose had, you know, he had dedicated so much of his archi- architectural prowess to establishing monuments to celebrate uh, those aspects of the ANC and of the struggle that really were worth celebrating. And yet, for all that, he he sort of died with with shame against his name, and I, and I, it still bugs me, I must say. Anyway, this is a very long history, I suppose but it, but it's I think it's important to understand that also Willem Borsov, at the time was the most exhibited artist at the constitutional hill yes. his 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 <laughs> you know his artwork had been there from the beginning, he'd been instrumental in in some of the design features. He was he was in that sense already a recognized national treasure. He had had retrospectives or major shows at every major national and private institution in the country. He'd gained great success abroad. None of this was enough to get any of the critics or art fundies to think twice about whether he was sort of making some nasty statement that it's good to be a racist rather than the more interesting art artsy sort of problematizing of of uh, right. Right. of of language in a space where where the word racist is denuded of its original meaning, and comes to mean yes. if it means that, I am just this and that and this and that and this and that. Right. Uh, so, so this is part of the reason that this exhibition is important, and Christopher Till was was important in pushing uh, Boris to get this exhibition at the Javits. Um, and. Uh, some of the new works, I mean, the newest work that I saw was called the death of Afrikaans, which is quite interesting because Bosov is Afrikaans. And his last big right. show was called, uh, uh, word woes or word which are exactly the same eight letters, just one pronounced in English, one pronounced in Afrikaans. But word okay, woes cool. is this like English view on Afrikaans as this, like this language of the oppressor, which is now like every word that it expresses is somehow, uh, a woe, somehow a tragedy, versus "wortvus," which is to become wild, which is this more <laughs> kind of Afroforum pushback, like, you know, let's just, let's just embrace our culture and run with it. And, and, and you might think that I'm being disparaging, but if you really, if you watch CakeNet and you look at the most recent Afrikaans plays and poetry coming out of English and colored Afrikaners, some black Afrikaners, it, it really is getting more and more wild. Uh, and right. has been since Efof Polisikar became the sort of grand creator of Afrikaans. <laughs> so he's, is it, that's the kind of wordplay that he does really well. And the death of Afrikaans is just a huge five meter high black marble monument engraved with little white words uh, that are the most beautiful old Afrikaans words that Bosov thinks are dying uh, as a result, yeah. not of external oppression, but of young Afrikaners kind of giving up. On their language, not in toto, but by sort of adopting right. anglicisms. That yeah, yeah, so I've it's putting in the English words. So yeah. So it's complicated and it's beautiful, and that's just one of the works. My favourite work that I saw there, I can't remember what it's called. It's called like an artist's handbook or something, and it's just a few, maybe hundred or thousand little um, flat slate, granite slates. Mm -hmm. in odd shapes, they look like the perfect kind of things to throw, uh, to skip on a river, slightly large but like that, and each one individually hand painted with the name of a minister and the years that they were in office over the last hundred years (laughs) and it's so weird to look through that and, and there's so many names that you don't know, and just to think that there's almost nothing to be proud of <laughs> yeah. yeah, It's so simple. He's so he's not jazzing it up or like you know. It's not like this modern artsy thing of like you've got to smear poo on a canvas, then, right? You know, to try and defame. It's just put the names on the pebbles, put it on a pile, and leave the reader to do the rest. <laughs> it's <Right>. amazing. <laughs> it's very dark. That's very good. Anyway. And then I took uh, uh, my fiancée to see the permanent collection. They have the Mapungupwe gold statues. So you see these hundreds of thousands of year old sort of gold little rhinoceri and very sad looking donkey. Mm. and The rhinoceros has got a funny but, little but, ear. Uh,
0: correct me if I'm wrong, but they're much smaller in person
1: than you sort of think from the pictures, right? Mm. Tiny and adorable and so human, dude. I mean, you really can see the sort of, Last traces almost of a fingerprint and of a little stick reshaping the gold from some dude mm-hmm. from so long ago. And his mind and your mind can just connect through this bizarrely uh, permanent medium that's also so luscious and lustrous. And and you can see the sort of strange little idiosyncratic artistic decisions like this sort of curve in the rhino's tail and like the sort of hang dog look in the donkey. And, oh, man, I, I it's really and I mean, the gold necklaces are impressive. They're very geometric and very uh, sort of simple and uh, abstract and charming in their way. But I, I really like the little figurines. And downstairs they have other figurines. It's, it's exceptionally poorly curated in the sense that there's almost no information around it giving you accurate mm. dates, such like. And there used to be, but that's sort of been removed. Um, I suppose not to confuse people with any sense of context. In part, I think it's uh, because some of the gold that they have downstairs is sort of from the 20th century. And so they, you know, if you're not looking carefully, you might just think it's all from super long ago. Uh, right. So I think, that, I don't know if that's intentional, but it's definitely the side effect if you're not there with the, mm, with the mm, dentist. Mm. Anyway, and then we went to go and see uh, this other exhibition of paintings that they have downstairs. Uh, Gerard Sakoto looking great. Gladys and Landloo, who's my favorite uh, of the sort of faux naifs. Irma Stern and Maggie Loeb who I think are Far inferior, uh, which is an interesting racial thing because you had these. Yeah, the, the the great Irma Stern is uh, highest selling or second highest selling South African artist. Painting right. in the '30s, a white woman painting black people uh, in in what what should you say their natural environments? I mean, that's really how some of the paintings seem, like sort of zoo like. Uh, <sighs> I don't know. it's very impersonal. There's, there's, there's very little by yeah. way of an individual figure. It's very like it's so much the kind of art that Hitler loved uh, in Germany, <laughs> sort of the bucolic ideal, you know some, some person carrying straw on their head or grounding a thing down in a field yeah. and so on and And she paints in this very naive way, rough brush strokes, not very accurate, not very mimetic. Maggie Loeffler does it too, but much better. Uh, but Gladys and Dumlandlu does the same thing later, but it's just so much more frank. And so, I mean, she has this painting there of a woman bare-breasted with uh, sort of beads over her chest, smoking a pipe with a big sort of vendor hat on top. And she just looks crazy and silly and ridiculous and funny and magical and powerful. Uh, It's it's so much more obviously like um, naive and tongue-in-cheek and satirical. Uh, in a way that, yes. that neither Erbster nor Maggie Lovecher ever would would risk doing with a black subject, uh, and for that very reason, it's much because it's more funny. It's also much more human. Yes, uh, yes. and Trevor is there with his, with his, his my uh, maybe the best uh, sort of after the nineties. Unfortunately, he died of drink. Zelatum Tetua is not there because he he was a great South African artist who then uh, killed a woman in an elevator, <laughs> uh, so he's in jail. And uh, his work was removed from the exhibition. Yes, that's why we know because there was a camera. Anyway, uh, so so anyway, just well, great South African well, art. The most well-planned murder, then. No, there's great South African art. Really, a lot of stuff to make you think and reflect on a long history um, of making beautiful objects. A history that, in painting, goes back at least 100 years. Um, on show, uh, 300 years. Uh, in addition to that, they've got some Pirnev's in there and the like. Really beautiful. And, th- and th- you know, over a thousand years in gold. And uh, and this really contemporary interesting stuff by Willem Bosov. Uh, a, a, re- a retrospective that's got work of his from the 70s until one piece that was just made in time for the show. Uh, so, uh, that just, it just reminded me what I love about this country. It is the people. It is the madness. It is the attempts to make meaning out of that madness. Um, right. Find one another on a bridge, uh, crossing a sort of boulevard of jacarandas where all the jacarandas have been cut down in the last three years. It's just, it's hard, and it's metaphors pretty... upon metaphors. Oh man! Anyway, so I, I, maybe that was a bit long, but it's, uh, it's. No, if you can stuff. check it out, check it out. If you can't check it out, just know that it's out there. Just know that. As repetitive and boring as the political headlines are, and as stuck as we are with the same problems over and over again, there are people making original contributions to the grand South African conversation every day. And excellent. Uh, that's excellent news. Little little lights of,
0: of of humanity shining out through the blanket of I don't know whatever whatever our our overlords are. I don't know how best to sum them up. Racist, kleptocratic morons. <laughs> Spot on. <laughs> okay. Um, right. So, if I may, can I jerk us violently and wildly to the other side of the planet? Please. So, uh, allegedly, uh, you may not have no- uh, uh, known this because it was not sort of very brightly reported or it didn't make uh, huge headlines, although it was reported on, but... Um, According to official sources, the war in Afghanistan is about to end. Uh, And that is because at at the end of February, um, the U.S. and the Taliban, not the Republic of Afghanistan, um, signed a treaty which said a number of things. It said that um, over the next 14 months, the U.S. and the, I don't know, 20 or something countries that are there supporting their mission um, will begin pulling out soldiers. And the Taliban will promise, we swear, really, guys, that we will start fighting terrorism and al-Qaeda. Uh, and then the Taliban and the government of the Republic of Afghanistan will, will get together and have a further set, further round of negotiations about what uh, the settlement will be between the Taliban and the, uh, at least normally, democratic government of Afghanistan will be.
1: Now. Great. So hold on, they're not, they're, they're not, the Taliban is going to secure democracy. America's done the, the, nation building, now the Taliban's going to do the rest of the nation building. They're going to oversee right. the free the and Taliban fair elections, will, will get rid and of the of drafting of a new constitution.
0: Right, and then the Taliban will sit down with the current uh, government of Afghanistan and uh, negotiate a, a settlement.
1: That's interesting.
0: <laughs> so you may have noticed some problems. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> i mean there's also right, so i don't think we've gone very far this still sounds like art to me <laughs> yeah
0: um it's a bit vague uh you know there's there's a lot of a lot of fuzziness here um there's some uh guarantees here the u.s says it will only be uh withdraw its troops depending on how the uh, the taliban does its um uh, uh, you know how how closely it sticks to the agreements here, and and whether it's genuine about making sure that it uh, targets uh, the Taliban. Uh, sorry, Al Qaeda, um, because technically speaking, Al Qaeda and Taliban are not quite the same organization. In fact, <laughs> Al Qaeda is a subsidiary of the Taliban. Ah. Um, because in in the in the I think it was in the nineties, um, the the leader of Al Qaeda, I think it was Osama bin Laden, or it might have been one of the others. Declared their allegiance to the Taliban because of the time the Taliban when it was ruling Afghanistan was Its official name was the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan I think is what it called itself and it was as far as they had the capacity to do so because they were Not in control of the whole country. They were you know didn't have a lot of money. They were a totalitarian regime Hmm. that enforced Sharia law incredibly brutally Um, with like religious police who involve themselves in every single aspect of your life. So
1: and kill people in stadiums for all kinds of
0: things. Right. And, you know, and if you're, if you're, you know, and, and the rules, it's like even more all encompassing than sort of like Soviet or Nazi totalitarianism, because you know, you couldn't, if you're a woman, you can't walk outside without a male guardian, Uh, you know, not covering your head is also subject to extreme punishment, um, any most crimes you get death or you get your hands cut off or things like that. Um, They were a brutal, nasty lot. Um, And uh, they were continuing to fight a civil war against other parts of the country that were not okay with them, but they were sort of the official government for five years. So anyway, um, (laughs) so the U S says that it won't pull out its troops unless the Taliban proves that it's acting in good faith. Now, You may think, okay, well, that seems sort of reasonable enough. Um, But uh, the U.S. has made uh, promises like this before. Um, For example, they made a similar kind of promise to the government of South Vietnam. And you will notice that there is no government of South Vietnam that exists today. (laughs) I did notice
1: that. I looked
0: it Because... Uh, It's very difficult politically for someone who is claimed the victory of ending a war, which the Biden administration and the Trump administration both kind of are doing, because this this peace agreement was mostly drafted under the Trump administration, although they were actually continuing on. They actually diluted the original version, which the Obama administration drew up, which was similar in structure. The Trump administration made more concessions.
1: This This is bipartisan. That's great
0: right this is bipartisan and now uh biden has has confirmed it by basically having his official sign it Mm. um at the the end of february so um through this whole process Al Qaeda's sort of like continue to blow up things and attack people its most uh effective unit within the taliban is called the i think the hakari network something like that i'm not sure how to pronounce it properly um but it is actually an al-qaeda affiliate within the taliban um, and it's their most effective soldiers and it has some of its leaders in the highest reaches of the Taliban's uh, leadership. So, so this is very idea... tripartite
1: and alliance, hey? This is like the right. ANG is gonna promise <laughs> to like get <laughs> yes. rid of Kesatu. SS... But... Yeah, kasatu and the SACP. Um,
0: <laughs> it's not terribly convincing. And the US, when it was negotiating this, decided not to include in the negotiations um the, the sort of the government of Afghanistan. Now, I think this is something that actually a lot of people don't quite understand about Afghanistan, who who don't really, you know, focus on the stuff, they don't really care. Yeah. Um, when the US toppled the Taliban, they ran the country for a little bit. And then they said, Okay, guys, now you're gonna need to have elections and draw up your constitution. And that is what happened. There were elections. Um, The U.S. demanded that there be certain things included, like, for example, women get the votes, And it had to be a broadly sort of separation of powers, constitution type of settlement. But a government was elected. um, And it's had several changes of prime minister since then. And uh, it's actually often been quite antagonistic to the U.S. But the U.S. has also spent something like close to a trillion dollars in trying to build up this government's capacity.
1: Now, due to various errors... I could have done with that money, but anyway.
0: (laughs) Due to various errors and incompetencies, uh, a lot of this money was very badly spent. And so they didn't build up a lot of state capacity, but they did give a lot of uh, opportunities for Afghan officials to steal it. And much of it has been stolen. (sighs) Um, (laughs) But...
1: Humans, uh, hey, we're not that different uh, in the desert <laughs> no, versus in the high <laughs> fault versus in the no, tropics.
0: We all live <laughs> <laughs> some fogles. Um And unfortunately, the government of Afghanistan, because so much of that effort in building up the nation was wasted, misdirected, uh, you know, completely badly spent.
1: Uh, Wait, let me guess. Let me guess. The people are not so keen on the government. Well, they're sort of keen on the government. They're more keen on the government than they are on the Taliban. Um, let's
0: put it that way. The government in Afghanistan like, it varies let's put between the bar underneath the
1: ground <laughs> and step over <laughs> it and call it.
0: Um, in surveys which are kind of difficult to do in Afghanistan because there's so much intimidation, political intimidation, um uh, people like between forty and fifty and sixty percent of the population seems to support the government. Oh, okay. So that's pretty good. The Taliban's approval rating is closer to 20% or lower.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but they also can't survey people who live in Taliban-controlled areas very easily. So mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not clear with that. And, is the, and the 20% have more guns. Yeah. yeah. Right, right, right. Um, also, the because the Afghan government has been pretty weak, and because the US has been sort of bumbling in its attempt to support them, uh, they've had to rely on a lot of local warlords to kind of... Mm back them up uh, and this is detailed quite nicely in um uh what's his name McMaster the US general wrote a book uh, about yeah. about these things that I've been reading I can't remember the name right now I can't see the title from where I'm sitting HR McMaster is the author though um the other problem is that the US has failed to deal with Pakistan so now Pakistan is sort of supposedly a US ally um but Pakistan is actually one of the biggest state sponsors of the Taliban uh the, the reason for this is, be, is because Pakistan fears that Afghanistan will become aligned with India. And yeah. the border regions of Pakistan have a lot of, there's a very particular ethnic group, which is called uh, the Pashtun people. Now, the Pashtuns uh, traditionally dominated the Taliban. And the Pakistani government has supported a sort of web of terrorist groups, Islamist terrorist groups across that area that aren't fully under their control but are often supported by them in the hopes that by keeping people sort of focused on Islamism, they won't become ethnically focused because Pakistan's terrible paranoid fear, and maybe it's not entirely paranoid, is that India will become allied with the government in Afghanistan and then the Pashtun people living in Pakistan will want to join Afghanistan Mm -hmm. uh, and India will help Mm -hmm. them do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Pakistan is very Mm -hmm. paranoid because it's in this very bad position where it's 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 surrounded by Yeah, on both sides. Uh, so the the so so the US has failed to deal with this. They've continued to actually give an enormous amount of aid to Pakistan, sort of in the belief that if you, it's better to what's that phrase from politics? It's better to have them inside the tent, uh, peeing out, than outside the tent peeing in. Um, but yep. this has meant that, sort of indirectly, the US has actually been funding the attacks on itself slightly. <laughs> which is tremendously incompetent. (laughs) Um, And the the Pakistani officer corps, and this is what McMaster talks about, and it's very interesting. Whenever the US goes to Pakistan to complain about, you know, Pakistani support for the Taliban or whatever, the the officer corps there are all uh, sort of like British educated Sandhurst, which is the big officer school in Britain. Um, Yeah. uh, You know, they're like... Uh, you know, all cricket masters who have extremely refined English in that way that only the the subcontinent actually produces. Um, mm. It's a sort of like mm. old fashioned way of speaking English. Um, and they always tell the American officials, no, no, no. You see, we are doing everything we can to fight these terrorists. And, and you know, it's very complicated and we're dealing with them as best we can. But, um, you know, we just need more money from the U.S. and then we'll really be able to give it to them. <laughs> 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 and generally naive State Department officials who've never left the U.S. except to go to Britain to take photos of the Queen, um, mm. say, mm. "Oh wow, that sounds that sounds great. Thank you. Um, have some money. <laughs> yeah, <have> some money." <laughs> so, anyway, that so the Taliban's kind of supported by the U.S. <laughs> it's now it's now supposed to take down Al Qaeda and then it's going to negotiate the
1: settlement with this new government. This new government, yeah, so just which you- is not. So, yeah. so the U.S. is is explicitly dealing in negotiations, committing to negotiate with the Taliban, right. not with the government. The government is right. like an afterthought, and it's indirectly funding the Taliban because it's giving lots of money to Pakistan, who are then giving it to the Taliban. So, right. uh, democracy building
0: no, uh, for not. the win. Yeah, it's not it's not been done particularly well. Um, now, to be fair, Trump did cut I think quite a lot of aid to Pakistan. Um, partly that was when McMaster was actually in the government there, uh, because he, this has been his bugbear, because he was a, you know, a soldier. Actually, he was a commander in Afghanistan for a while, and so he, he knew the the issues quite well. Um, but uh, what's what's the sort of what what's the point of getting at here? Is that the U.S. is abandoning its ally? You know, Afghanistan, mm. the, the Afghan war is not actually fought mostly by Americans and Brits and French and whatever these days. It's fought, I think it's like, there's something like 8,000 US troops in -hmm. Afghanistan. And they don't actually have frontline combat roles. And there's like 120,000 Afghan soldiers fighting the Taliban.
1: Mm.
0: And most of the bloodshed in the war has been Afghans fighting for, if not quite their freedom, um, their freedom from the Taliban. Mm. Uh, The Taliban is really bad. And although the Afghan government is, kind of dysfunctional, kind of corrupt, although it's allied with warlords who are complete, you know, sort of scum, it's still, at least nominally, democratically elected. It still has a constitution, and it's still normal in the sense that it's a kind of dysfunctional third world government, but not a totalitarian state. And that's why it's more popular than the Taliban, because people who are alive during the Taliban's rule remember, you know, it was a not, not great. So anyway, the U.S. has kind of cornered itself through its own incompetence um, into defeating itself. I think that's basically the only thing you can you can describe this as. Um, I don't believe there are security guarantees to the Afghan government, and so what's probably going to happen is the moment all the U.S. troops are gone, the Taliban will try to take the government of Afghanistan. Um, and they will use their al-Qaeda allies and their allies in Pakistan. That's why it's no surprise that Osama bin Laden was hiding there, by the way. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, it, it will use these things. Right next, as,
1: to, a, right next to a military compound.
0: Right. Yeah, that's, that's almost certainly, and there's a reason the Americans, when they went to kill him, did not inform the Pakistani government that they were going to do it, which meant that they basically invaded Afghanistan for a couple hours
1: uh, Pakistan. Uh,
0: illegally. Yeah, sorry, Pakistan uh, illegally yeah. to 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 kill someone. So, yeah, it's it's a complete mess. And you may think, okay, well, you know, that's
1: can I just butt in here? Yeah. So I think one of the uh, I'm 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 sort of a fan a little bit. I don't know if there's is naive of General Ridgway, who was uh, sort of an important figure in the U.S. military. Uh, shortly after World War II, when a similar situation had emerged. Uh, North Korea and South Korea had been involved in a civil war. And this was after, you know, much like in Afghanistan, this was a a story that you could trace back to colonialism. The Koreas had been colonized by Japan uh, sort of half a century before that, and then sort of uh, uh, sucked up into the Chinese civil war so much you know m- much like here there were sort of religious questions ethnic questions colonial questions and they and they'd all kind of uh, bungled together to make uh, life hell yes and and so there were a lot of people who took the same view that i think a lot of people will uh, take to afghanistan which is that it's just so bad the best thing to do is get out right and the americans and a lot had, of us politicians are making that point explicitly and, and the Americans had gotten involved in, this, in, the, in the Korean Civil War. They joined the South Korean side, which was uh, anti-communist and pro-capitalist. And the North Koreans had sort of been joined by China and uh, the USSR. And the Americans were more or less losing. Seoul had been invaded and pretty much flattened. And, you know, the South Korean forces were doing really poorly. And uh, so it looked like uh, the perfect time to just give up. I think much like in right. Afghanistan today. there was sort of war fatigue when it all started. It was all bang your chest and hoorah, and here we go. We're, we're Americans and we can do whatever we want. We're going to spread freedom. And then it cost blood and treasure and it wasn't working out. And they were like, ah, this is not working out. And General Ridgway uh, then took command, was gi- given command. And he was like, damn this. You know, if, if going into the war was a bad idea, the worst idea is leaving it before you secure the preconditions right. for genuine uh uh, uh, stretch of democracy And so uh, fought, fought bloody hard And won At least won enough for South Korea to be established And if you look at South Korea 50 years ago It was far worse off Than uh, Many African countries Even if you look yeah. in the 70s It was poorer and than point, Ghana In yeah, the 60s In, in, the, in the 70s mm-hmm. So It uh, you know, it it was poorer than South Africa in the eighties, and the early nineties, and but they just did the hard work to set up this democracy in this place that seemed like it was too far gone, in a and, place and where it went basically people were right,
0: and it, it, it went, went back for a while, up it was until tough. the eighties at least, in in South yeah. Korea.
1: But they, but the Americans uh, were part of you know, protecting the side that, as you say, even if it wasn't looking for outright freedom, was looking for freedom from. Uh, yeah. A really bad alternative. A side that was, you know, willing to commit to to some fundamentals, starting with property rights, and and right. and I think the, the, you know, from a race relations point of view, I think it's just important to to say the unsaid, to speak the unspoken, which is that a lot mm-hmm. of pe- a lot of pessimists end up just being racist. They just think those people, however narrowly or broadly you want to define them, they just can't do freedom, and so we shouldn't right. be uh, uh, trying to help them out. Yeah, And 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 this is a view that's actually that's a view that's
0: supported by the Communist Party of China, which basically makes the argument that Chinese people are not capable of democracy, and that's why they need to have a one party system where the party controls everything. I mean, they they talk about the Chinese way of doing things and creating policies and governments that are appropriate for the nations that they come from, that kind of thing. So it's it's not even like just a Western thing. It's, you know, not uh, authoritarians in the East actually use this to justify themselves. Um, and it's internalized by a lot of Chinese people. Our our colleague, um, Nick Babaya, he speaks Mandarin. He has lots of friends in China. And whenever he, he has mentioned something like democracy. Um, his Chinese friends will say, no, 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 no. But then everyone, you know, Chinese people, we'd all just vote for the celebrities and mm. then we'd have terrible government. We can't have we can't have democracy. <laughs> mm. <laughs> you know, it's completely internalized.
1: Dude, it's straight <laughs> out of apartheid, Pakistan politics. Right. Right. Know, exactly. We should, exactly. We should know this all too well. Anyway, so I'm not saying that it's a good idea for America to go bomb whoever they like in order to spread freedom. But I do think it means like once you've started the war. uh, Pulling out yeah, well, they, in this kind of way, it 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 walks the walk of of racist pessimism. Uh, it right. walks the they've, walk of of surrender. Uh, in they, a, in they, a, they've arrived in this
0: country. They you know came with all these ideals and ideas and rhetoric. They drove the Taliban out. They did all this really good stuff um, on trying to build up things. You know, women could vote in Afghanistan for like the first time ever in its history. Things like that. And now they've just said to the Afghan government, who they helped set up, uh, sorry, guys, we're out. Bye. Look after yourselves. <laughs> and they're moosing. So if you're the Afghan government, right, Yeah. you kind of, you know, you came into this position. You have hope for your country that you could kind of sort of fix it. Things have gone a little bit more difficult than, than you hoped. Um, you're fighting now a very difficult war against a very well a very experienced and cunning enemy who has a lot of experience uh, in fighting in Afghanistan because they've been doing it for literally decades. Mm. You've got this kind of big army, but the Americans are like now iffy and they're going away. So you're them. What do you do? Well, you need to look for a new friend in the world, right? The Taliban have Pakistan, the Taliban have, you know, uh, Qatar and Arab sheiks and whoever. Um, there is one big power in the neighborhood who you can turn to, and that's China. And so probably I suspect what will happen is um, once the Americans withdraw, the Taliban will start attacking again. The negotiations that are planned between the Republic of Afghanistan and, uh, oh, that's the only part where the Republic of Afghanistan is included in this peace deal, by the way, the Americans yeah. force them to sign something committing to negotiate with the Taliban. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, but hold on, Nick, let me, let me pause you because I think you said something that's half true. Uh, what right. about uh, the government of Afghanistan actually uh, calling on India for support? It's possible they might do that.
0: Um, but, you know, uh, they, the Indians don't have as much money or as much tech as, as, uh, as, as, as China. Mm. Um, and so they are a pretty natural ally. And I think actually that's a good point. They might go that way as well. Um, But I think, you know, China already has a kind of alliance with uh, Pakistan, which is complicated because Pakistan's military likes the fact that Chinese protect them from India, but it also Mm. doesn't like how influential China is becoming over Pakistan. So they're freaking out a bit there. Um, And the Chinese are looking to undermine the American position around the world. And they're looking to make allies and prove themselves as as a new hegemon. Um, mm. And so I think they will be very amenable to talking to Afghanistan. And, you know, it's difficult for, for Afghanistan and India to ally with each other because uh, Modi is so on board this kind of that's the prime minister of India, Narendra Modi. Um, you know, so much of his identity is wrapped up in this kind of Hindu nationalist. Mm. It's going to be a little bit difficult for him to ally with a very Islamic power, mm. even if it is against Pakistan. Um, I think that will cause tensions between the two.
1: So, Russia, in other words, what...
0: You think uh, Russia is just not kind enough of money. too
1: poor to... Yeah,
0: yeah uh, not enough money, too far away. I mean, you know, China is actually even closer than Russia.
1: Yeah, um, I mean, Russia has and, has played a big role in Afghan history. They Soviet right. Union kind of collapsed and, and, and trying to invade exactly, Afghanistan. Exactly, invading
0: Afghanistan. Um, but, but China also has another reason to become involved in Afghanistan, and that is that... Um, the bit where the Uyghurs live, uh, who are being you know, sort of locked up and tortured and all these horrible things with the Chinese right now, um, Xinjiang province is actually the, the bit of China that's closest to Afghanistan. Mm. And you could very easily see that if the Taliban took over Afghanistan, they might start giving support to the Muslim Uyghurs in Xinjiang to fight the Chinese. So what's the point I'm trying to make here? Well, it looks like 20 years of American conflict and 2,400 American soldiers killed has been in service of creating a Chinese client state, (laughs) which if that doesn't reveal how incompetent the U S foreign policy is, I don't really know what it (laughs) is. It's just like how
1: bipartisan. Yeah,
0: right. They, they, if if, for a time created an, an Iranian puppet state. Um, although, Luckily, the Americans actually have been bailed out a bit because the people of Iraq were fed up with an Iranian influence over their country, and there were major protests that pushed the Iranian-lined government out of power in Iraq. Um, so you know, the the, the people saved the Americans' bacon there. But anyway,
1: yeah. And why, I suppose so, that so is. Be, I, I think that's a broader point to to draw on is that, in ways that people sometimes don't appreciate, the world America did become the world's policeman after the end of the Cold first cold right. war and so there really was a credible sense in which uh the pressure was relieved from domestic control of government uh because it was supplanted or complemented by american hard and soft power but right. as the world becomes more multipolar as america is becoming increasingly incompetent and started out very incompetent too with my view on its uh, Uh, miscarriage of of the birth of russian democracy and so on um and the sort of you know uh, polling based decision on when to time its intervention in the war in bosnia uh right it just is up to people more on the ground to determine their own fates and and you know i think there's a lesson there for south africans uh, it's not to say that America's influence or lack thereof, you know, where it pulls out isn't important and where it pushes in isn't important in hard and soft ways, uh, but it is mm. to say that as the as the general trend is towards uh, uh, in the direction of I- isolationism or in the direction of actually su- sort of this sort of kludgy, pragmatist approach that ends up uh, meaning that the Americans will sponsor their own enemies and uh, sponsor the, o- the enemies of their own uh, sort of system of constitutional democracy uh it's it's increasingly up to us and maybe that's right. the kind of lesson the sooner learned the better
0: right no i, I think that's completely right um but it, it, i think so you might listen to this and you might think okay well this is a problem for americans this is not really a you know this is a this is interesting kind of but like who cares all right uh, yeah yeah, well, look, there, you know, I think there's a case to be made that one should care because, uh, you know, human liberty is threatened again in a very serious way. And I think that it's important for anyone who believes in human liberty to to kind of stand up um, for those things, which is why one of the reasons why I care so much about Taiwan, because I think that, you know, if Taiwan is taken over by China, it will be one of the first snuffings out of a truly proper liberal democracy since World War Two. Mm. Um, and we know how that ended because of course it started with Czechoslovakia but it, and Austria but it did not end with Czechoslovakia or Austria yeah um, but also you know there's some more practical things here so firstly you know if you remember the sort of mid 2010s I don't know what we call that decade uh, the teens the teens um, there were an awful lot of terrorist attacks around the world particularly in Europe and that was yeah. because the, the Islamic State controlled territory in Syria and Iraq And it used that as a base for resources, for training, for recruitment, pulled in people and it sent them off to other parts of the world to Mm. cause mischief, kill people, Mm. that kind of thing. Um, So if the Taliban managed to either take over Afghanistan or at least establish a very powerful part of Afghanistan under their control, Mm. uh, they will almost certainly begin exporting terrorism again, as they did before 9-11. I mean, that's, why the Americans went there in the first place? Because they were exporting, uh, you know, Islamic radicals um, around yeah. the world. Yeah. But then there's another thing as well, which is when the Americans invaded, um, and pushed the Taliban out into the into the mountains, the Taliban were starved of resources, and mm. so whereas they used to be pretty anti-drug, they said, you know, we can grow an awful lot of opium here, which is of course made to use use to make heroin. Um, and, you know, like, look, the Quran isn't super keen on drugs, but if we, you know, just grow them and sell them to foreigners, is it really yeah. that bad? They're infidels. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. And we get the money to spread. Yeah. And so the Taliban has become heavily involved in massive heroin growing operations or, or opium growing operations across uh, that region. And now, an enormous percentage of the world's heroin. I can't remember what it was, but it, a few years ago, it was like 80% of all the yeah. world's heroin is actually grown basically in Afghanistan or on the border with Pakistan. Yeah, so
1: it's become a narco state in a sense. And right. The, and so the longer you the, prop it the, the up, ta- the more you
0: right. spread. Right. So, so the, the Taliban throats. is allied to those guys. So every time you see kids in, in South Africa um, doing Naope on the streets and sort of laying their, you know, blazed out of their minds, um, it's almost certain that it was. Taliban grown uh, heroin, basically, that resulted in those kids uh, like that. So it does have a real impact on us. We're not. We're not. Uh, the whole world is not. Is unfortunately the, the idea. This is a, an idea that I'm very personally anti. Is the the kind of isolationist one. Is that you know, you can fly anywhere in the world in a couple hours. Mm. Um, that means that anything is only a couple hours away. Any kind of disaster or calamity, and in this mm. case. The problem is drugs.
1: So, <laughs> Okay, so from exporting drugs and terrorists to exporting uh, terrific ideas. Shall we segue into our last topic quickly? Uh, um, I
0: think we, we are a bit over time, so you'll need to make it
1: quick. Uh, okay. Um, So uh, I just wanted to quickly talk about the... the. I, th- I think one of the things... The, the last mistake that people can make is to think that... Uh, 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 because of the bomb, because of nuclear weapons, uh, there can't right. be a hot war. I mean, that's more or less right. You can have proxy wars, which can really get super bad. Um, and you could but potentially so have fairly
0: it, limited conflicts as well.
1: So, so, but that, but, but that can make you think that the uh, that that this is all either very far away or that um, the. Or you make the other mistake of thinking it's only when hard violence and hard drugs are being spread that, that you've got a big problem of sort of exporting uh, uh, factors that destabilize democracy. South Africa has, uh, since uh, the uh, new dispensation, um, unfortunately, in, it started out spreading the good word on non-racialism and being a real beacon right. for that across the planet. But it has uh, incubated and from their spread... Uh, a race nationalist ideology, Uh, sometimes called wokeism, sometimes called fallism, uh, sometimes called black race nationalism, and, uh, you know, it's the same, it's just the opposite side of a coin called white supremacy. Uh, These things really support each other rather than uh, making enemies of each other. And
0: and the the intellectual uh, spaces of of South Africa and the U.S. actually are, are interestingly intertwined, and there's a long history of that that goes back um, yeah. I you know, I even heard it suggested once that the idea for apartheid really came to was 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 properly entrenched in the Nats' minds by looking at segregation in the southern U.S. states. Yeah. Um, and Pan-Africanism, black race nationalism, were imports from America, from from American intellectuals, in a lot of ways. Yep. Like W.E.B. Yeah. E. Du Bois.
1: Case in point. Okay, so uh, just just a recent uh, kind of play uh, on that theme is SOAS, uh, which is this London-based university uh, sort of the study of Oriental and East Asian Studies, or something it's called, Um, and it has been kind of the hotbed for this way of thinking in the UK, and uh, Adam Habib, who was the (laughs) Vice-Chancellor of WITS, was then appointed uh, some very important position there, and I was interested by that because I think Habib has... uh, you know, he was expressly anti-Fourlist. He uh, was yeah. much sterner than Max Price at UCT, for example. And so I thought, you know, th- th- he- here they are. They're going to have to deal with a man of color, a South African guy, a guy who sort of lived under apartheid. Uh, so he's got all the struggle credentials. And at the same time, he's much more pragmatic than a lot of their right. sort of faculty mm-hmm. and expressions would have you my, believe they are.
0: My my theory is that while his heart is sort of in in, in a in a lot of similar places to the Fallists. That ultimately his ego overrides his uh, his ideology, and that he is willing to pursue excellence, especially excellence that makes him look good, over any kind of ideological commitment. And that's my personal theory as to why uh, he stood against the fallers so so well in Witz is because he realised that his legacy as vice chancellor of Witz would be, uh, you know, nothing but ruin and despair if he let the fallers (laughs) have their way. (laughs) And so
1: he was like, he too
0: would fall you know i'm all I'm all for the struggle, and often a lot of his statements were kind of for this. you know he would say, "Oh, you know, I kind of support the the students' pressure on government or whatever to you know improve higher education um but this is stupid <laughs> and um, yeah uh, i think I think that 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 has now actually isolated him from the far left where he was you know quite comfortable um and now he's he's become a bit of a wanderer in the sense yeah. that he, he, you know, that's where he sits ideologically, but he just can't get on with them because they're too mad and too self-destructive.
1: Yeah, my view is a bit different. I think he's a genuine non-racialist uh, of the sort of communist kind. Uh, you know, I think he, he, he takes class struggle very seriously and thinks race is a is a sort of distracting social construct uh, and is alive to the fact that in South Africa, you know, most dollar millionaires are black, and most political elites are black, and so the sort of arguments that we need black liberation are really ways of distracting from uh, these individuals as uh, graft and grift, and uh, and anyway, but but uh, maybe we're both right in some sense. Um, but uh, uh, the the recent controversy was that he. Uh, used the n-word in a sort of zoom call with some students and said basically that uh, you know they would brought up some allegations and he said i've never i haven't heard these allegations before but you know this is definitely against policy um but in so doing he said the word himself and the distinction that any sort of child uh can can hold in their mind is between quoting a word as an example of what not to say and using the word as a term of abuse right uh, but that distinction sort of sailed past the minds of these so as students, and so they got challenged outraged. him, I believe. And one you know, black dude said, "You know, you uh, black bodies have been are oppressed twenty four seven for the last five hundred years, and you don't embody that experience, so you don't have the right to say the word." Right. Um, and then the EFF jumped on the bandwagon and and sort of denounced him here as have others. Now, part of what's hilarious about that is that the EFF is some
0: misreported is, in in the media. Sorry, yes. sorry to sorry to to bring this up, but the media reported it as though he had claimed in his defence that South Africa was a place where we use the N word all the time. Mm.
1: But, but that's not what he said. What he said was, right. "I come from a world where context matters." Uh, yes, <laughs> <laughs> which is which is uh, I think
0: uh, the misreporting actually kind of <laughs> suggests really. that maybe he was a little bit wrong about that. <laughs>
1: I mean, personally, in his mental space, he comes from that world. Uh, But it definitely doesn't describe the world called South African mainstream media. Um, Anyway, so, yeah. So one of the hilarious things is that the EFF denounced him strongly. uh, But they have been the the only, uh, you know, outside of Black First, Land First uh, group I know to explicitly use the N-word as a term of abuse. Um, yes. As, as most recently, Reedy really Clubby was was called a house N-word. Gwen Gwenya has been called a house N-word. uh, Nglosi, uh Malema, uh, Floyd—they've all used the house N-word to disparage their enemies that happen to be black. Uh, and so it's really, it's just ridiculous uh, that they're the ones who, who who are claiming this moral high ground. Um, the other thing, as you say, is this misrepresentation of the context uh and and of course the simplest thing is just this sort of misunderstanding between using a word as a term of abuse and using a word uh in quotes to sort of say this is the word that you shouldn't say um and i, I just one bit of research uh sort of side slant is sunday times called me uh to give comment for the institute of race relations on this unfortunately that wasn't used uh there's very little critical uh said in its article uh, although it's very short uh which is uh is is what it is uh, but i but I looked up um, I found this case which i'd remembered where in two thousand and thirteen, a black American was uh basically sued for using the n word against black employees said you're acting like a bunch of n words, and I thought this is a nice example to a nice counter example to the general claim, which is that you know if you're black, you can say it, no matter what. And if you're white or non-black, then you can't say it, no matter what, the context. Right. And uh, that's not the view of, I think, the most respected black American intellectuals or celebrities. Ask Denzel Washington what he thinks about that. Ask uh, Booker T. Washington what he thinks about its equivalent 100 years ago. Ask Thomas Sowell. Ask Larry Elders. Uh, ask Barack Obama. None of them are down with that. Um, right. Nor is the American court. Uh it's, it's really just an idea that kind of lives, I think, on the bridge between South Africa, SOAS, and America, uh, this sort of yeah. interloping pan-Africanist uh, place where the real thing, the real win for them is, is, is not about the word. It's about having a different code of conduct for different races. White should act like yes. this, black should act like that. That's the basic idea. That's the starting and driving idea of racialism. And the N-word is just a sort of convenient place to go to because, of course, so many people get so worried when they hear it that they're uh, willing to switch their brains off for a moment. And that's exactly, unfortunately, what Habib has done. He said he will apologize unequivocally to the university and to the students because even though they didn't understand basic semantics,
0: uh,
1: their feelings were hurt. And that's what matters.
0: Right, I think he's making the the, the tactical error, which he didn't really make during... um, uh fees Must Fall, which is that by apologizing mm. in a place where he knows that he's not in the wrong mm. uh, he is going to undermine his own position and I suspect it will be the beginning of the end of his uh, of any authority he holds over that university mm. whether he's actually kicked out or not I think you know, people will just ignore him from now on, which is silly um, I, I think it's you know it's something a lot of people have to learn the hard way because your first instinct is to go, look, you know, I understand that someone might have been upset. And so I'll do the human thing and say, OK, like, sorry that I, I didn't mean to make you upset. But uh, the evil of the easters is, is that they use uh, 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 apologies as an admission of guilt. And a cause No, course, I, I completely punishment.
1: disagree. I completely disagree. I think okay. that, that an apology is an admission of guilt. Right. So don't apologize if you didn't do it. And if you did do it, right. then apologize. If someone well, apologizes, well, it ought to be used as an admission of guilt, because semantically that's exactly what it entails. I okay, don't think right. this is the evil of appeasers who, who, who say, I'm sorry, and don't really mean it, and then find that others take them at their word.
0: Right. So, so I think, But it's kind of what's the issue here is they'll say, they'll say that his apology is for being racist, <clears throat> not not apologizing for causing offense which is a different thing
1: yeah but if you cause offense uh, uh, using a racial slur and then you apologize then what else is you know either you say (laughs) i didn't cause this offense you're just performing offense uh taking in order to drive a political agenda which is not an apology and no one will mistake for an apology or you say (laughs) look i used the n-word and i'm very sorry that i caused you offense uh, and then people say that's an admission of guilt. Well, damn straight. That's exactly what it is. Mm. Apologies. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a quibble that I have with South Africans in particular. We say shame a lot uh, when there's no shame at all. You know, I'm just going to the store <laughs> to fetch you something. Someone says, oh, shame. Yeah. Can you get me like a thing of milk? I don't know. Why we use that word, I think it's part of, it's an expression of how screwed up our politics is. And the same for sorry. <laughs> Someone says, the only time that I think it's acceptable to say sorry for something that you didn't do is at a funeral. If you say, I'm sorry for your loss. Uh, yes. What no, you're no, really I, saying I, is I there, that. there are no words that I can say to you that meaningly, my condolences are more technical. But if you say, I'm sorry for your troubles. I'm sorry for your loss. Everyone knows you don't really mean it. What you really mean is this sucks. And I hope you keep living. Right. Um, right. And Jews have it much better. They say long life. That's the right thing to say at a funeral from a semantic point of view. But we English people say, I'm sorry. And that's the one place where it's okay to say, I'm sorry. when You haven't done it. If someone has a car accident and it's just a small scrape and it's going to cost them 2000 Rand to replace the bumper. You don't say, I'm sorry. Uh, you definitely don't say, I'm sorry to hear that. So then it's almost as if the the problem is you listening. You say, that sucks. <laughs> How can I help? And you be a flippant human being because words have meanings. This is like the Donut Hole skit of Seinfeld. You, you, you surrender the meanings of words at your own bloody cost.
0: <laughs> so no, I, know, I know the very specific meanings of words does, um, does get your goat, so to speak, which is an interesting phrase, um, which I saw a video on the history of. Let, let's finish with recommendations now because we've gone long over time.
1: Okay, uh, you go first, Nick.
0: Uh, so I've got a whole bunch, but one of them is uh, a YouTube channel called Salmonella Academy, which has lots of very silly videos just that are kind of mildly interesting. Um, you should probably look up the dead body hijinks one, which is all the very strange things that people have done with corpses. <laughs> um, it's it's just a number of anecdotes uh, from history that are bizarre, to say the least. Uh, the other one is a channel called, I think it's called Dimple. Um, on youtube if you look it up it does so you know they're not the greatest channel in, in some ways they, they're a little bit clickbaity and they also oh, um their translations are not very good but basically what their main shtick is they interview north koreans who've defected from 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 north korea and now live in south korea and they ask them just various questions about what they think about you know americans what they think about the world how they would you know how everything changed for them why they left north korea just stuff like that the videos are usually quite sort of silly and it's like you know north korean tries american food for first time you know they do, they do a lot of silly things like that but they are often quite fun and also uh, they have some ones where they interact with like an israeli or an american soldier and and one of the stories from that is uh, an american soldier is is talking to uh, a north korean soldier and They have to describe their worst experience in the army, and the American says, "Oh, once we were doing this week-long mission where we had to run through the bush and we weren't allowed to change our clothes, and uh, I was caught short going to the toilet and I had to walk around with 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 poop in my pants for like four days, and it was really awful." And North Korean guys like, "Wow, that's really horrible, man. Let me tell you about the time my friend and I were starving to death." And so we killed and ate the puppy dog that belonged to our commanding officer and shared it with the other people in our unit because they were also starving to death. And it was the first meat we'd eaten in months. <laughs> <I think that's laughs>
1: the American just... Don't try to... and stop. You can't try and story top a North Korean. For such no. One.
0: And the American just can't. You can see that his, like, conception of, of badness in the world has just expanded tenfold <laughs> as to what's possible. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, no, it's really good because it just, it humanizes the people of North Korea who we often, we don't get to see a lot of um, because they're kept in that horrible, awful open-air prison called North Korea. Um, and uh, it's it's just nice to see. And, you know, it's also, I'm, I'm at least... I would say 50% sure that that channel is run by either the South Korean intelligence services or the CIA, because it is very explicitly like a sort of propaganda channel, but I think it's really good. You should check it out. Dimple.
1: Dude, I think that's great. It's my favorite recommendation of yours. Uh, I'm just going to recommend a quick poem. I'm just going to read it out to you. Uh, What's interesting about this poem is that you can read it in English and Afrikaans. It's exactly the same letters. So it's called, My stories begin as letters, which can also be read as my stories begin as letters, which has exactly the same meaning. My pen is my wonderland, world water in my hand. My pen is wonder ink, stories sing, stories sink. My stories loop, my stories stop. My pen is my wonder mop, drink letters, drink my ink. My pen is blind. My stories blink. And I'll just read it in Afrikaans. My pen is my wonderland. Word water in my hand. and my pen is ink. Stories sing. Stories sink. My stories loop. My stories stop. My pen is my wonder mop. Drink letters. Drink my ink. My pen is blind. My stories blink. Funny old thing. Funny old thing about uh, language and the games it can play. And uh, yes. good to remember in South Africa on any day. Indeed. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Uh, we'll catch you next week
0: um, or at the end of this week, whenever this comes up, probably on Monday. Um, thank you very much and keep that flag of liberty flying.
1: Cur, 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 cur.